Bethany Hughes is a cultural historian, author, and documentary filmmaker. She is a research fellow at King's College London and a professor of history at the New College of the Humanities. She is also the author of numerous books, including Helen of Troy and her latest, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, a Sunday Times bestseller. Please give a very warm welcome to Miss Bethany Hughes. Thank you so much for that, and thank you, everybody, for making it here on this incredibly sultry Californian night. Well done, and there's overflow, so you're just brilliant for, for turning up. Um, what we're going to aim to do tonight is actually to bring a little bit of Eastern Mediterranean, North African, Middle Eastern sun into the room, uh, because our subject, as you well know, is the completely uncomplicated and uncontroversial <laughs> question, did women ever rule the world? Um, uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this, I think. Uh, we're going to talk for a bit, then we're going to open it to the floor. Um, but the reason for the Eastern Mediterranean, North African, Middle Eastern sun is that we're going to look at that question through the prism in particular of three characters of um, Hatshepsut, Nefertiti and Cleopatra. And I don't know if any of you, have you, have you been to see the, the exhibition that's on here? Oh, yeah, fantastic. If you haven't, do. It's, it's beautiful, and we'll be referring to some of the objects in that museum as well. So, so it's going to be um, a, a great night. I, I just wanted to make a very personal thank you uh, both to the Getty and to Zocolo for organising this, this beautiful evening. But also, I have to say, these two ladies don't know this, I have got the most enormous girl crush on both of them as, a, as um, an academic. So I've got all of their books at home. We've been, we've been very kind of formal back in the green room. Um, and I would just like to say a personal thank you because you are my academic heroines. These are two women who have consistently and constantly written women uh, back into the story of history um, and have the good sense. Yes, thank you. Um, and wisdom to realise that actually uh, this isn't just an exercise in understanding the past. We can only enjoy our potential in the present and in the future if we understand how we work together, um, agendas of all kinds to create our civilization. So thank you to, to both of you. And I, now the formal introduction. So Cara Cooney is a social historian and a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. Uh, she was the lead expert on the Discovery Channel programme the Secrets of Egypt's Lost Queen and is also author of The Woman Who Would Be King, Hatshepsut's Rise to Power in Ancient Egypt. And completely appropriately for this evening, her next book, which is due out in the autumn, is called When Women Ruled the World. So we know what her stance is, Six Queens of Egypt. So please welcome Cara Cooney. And on my far left, Joyce Tildesley is an archaeologist and Egyptologist at the University of Manchester. Uh, she too is the author of numerous books, including Cleopatra, The Last Queen of Egypt, and Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon. And appropriately enough, I think, for the spirit of this evening, she is both a rigorous scholar in the library and in the field, but also is a passionate advocate of sharing ideas with as wide as possible a global audience. Um, and she teaches Egyptology online. So I'm just going to say, if any of you want a lesson from <laughs> Joyce online, she is available, she tells me, which sounds like a rather kind of rash promise. Um, but you can sign up to her courses and that they're, they're brilliant. So uh, again, well done, Joyce. And thank you. Can we welcome Joyce? So, I think to start, um, we have to address the, the elephant, the mother elephant in the room. Did women ever rule the world? Was there ever, do you both think, a moment in time uh, where there was a matriarchy, where women didn't just have equal power to men, but actually controlled things? Um, Joyce. I don't know any evidence that there was. I think there are points where some notable women ruled. They, you could say that they ruled the world. They certainly ruled their own world. But I don't think there's any evidence for consistent female rule. Having said that, of course, there are a lot of societies that aren't literate societies, and we don't know what happens. So we've got societies in Africa, we've got societies around the world that we just don't know what was happening. So I wouldn't like to say never, but as far as I'm concerned, no, it was... 
always, I think, unusual for a woman to take a position of power. Cara? There's no easy answer to this question. And I just wrote a book called When Women Rule the World. <laughs> so it's going to be hard for me to say absolutely no, because Egypt is a strange and extraordinary place that did allow women into power pretty consistently, regularly. And, and they achieved the highest office. They were usually named king, not ruling behind the throne or whispering things to the king, things like that. And that's what this book is trying to crack. Having said that, um, the answer to your question is no. Um, and if you're talking about prehistory and hunter-gatherers, there are many hunter-gatherer societies that one could look at today. And the anthropologist I've, that I introduce when I, when I teach a subject like this and ask this question is Ernestine Friedel, who looks at power as divided by gender or sexuality and has determined that it's the money stupid, it's all economic. So mm -hmm. if somebody, male or female, brings a scarce resource into the, the community, then that person has political power by extension. Most hunter-gatherer communities, the person who brings the scarce resource in, the meat, is the male. Um, but the Tongva of Southern California the females are equal in bringing in the scarce resources, or at least they were when they, when they still exist in a natural way. Um, and they have almost 50% political power um, in their communities. So yes and no, but there, the, the quick answer to your question is there is no mythical matriarchy to which we can return. No, I think that's, and uh, probably you've read the books in this room, there was a moment where people desperately wanted that to be true, and a yes. lot was written about matriarchal societies, and there was this rather uh, false notion, I think interestingly, which stemmed from monotheistic societies, thinking there must also have been a monotheistic society in the past, run by a single mother god, and obviously the earth is a mother and there is this kind of fecund fertility mm. timbre to all those conversations but we know that early societies prehistoric societies were, were almost everything but monotheistic so they were animists there were spirits so there were gods and goddesses and uh, you know creatures that walked the earth but there wasn't a single mother goddess so I think we probably do have to dispel that idea from our mind well monotheism doesn't usually do anybody any favors particularly women but I'll just throw that out. <laughs> we can talk about that later maybe <laughs> But also, as you were saying, in, in some ways, never say never, because extraordinary things emerge every season from archaeological digs, which do nuance our idea of what was happening. And there do seem to be some of those early societies in Anatolia, there definitely does seem to be some kind of equity between men and women, and women do have status and standing in them. Yeah, we have to be careful not to make assumptions. We think we know things, and it's happened in the past that we thought we knew things, and so we start to interpret things through what we think we know. We have to keep an open mind and see what evidence turns up and try and interpret it the best way we can, definitely. I mean, the biggest problem with this, if you're, you're talking about Chachalhuyuk or Goblaki Tepe or someplace like that, how do you, or Dir Medina, a place in Egypt, a craftsman, craftsman's village to which I pay much of my attention, how do you decide if you're determining archaeologically where power is in a domestic space or a village space, what is a woman's arena and what is a male's arena? And there's an archaeologist who works at Stanford, uh, Lynn Meskel, who attempted to do this with Dir Medina in Egypt and said, this is the women's domain in the back room and this is the front room, is the man's domain. And to, in my opinion, it was a very simplistic understanding of what a domestic space is and was. And um, it's a very problematic thing to go into a material um, understanding of what is, what is masculine, what is feminine, and how, where the power lies. Yeah. Tough. One uh, woman who we do know um, uh, certainly told the world that she was a woman in charge of all around her was a Hatshepsut. So Hatshepsut, um, Carl, I'm going to get you to talk about her a little bit, but I think I'm right in saying, is this right, that in, in, inscribed in uh, the space for her tomb, she's described or she describes herself as mistress of all lands, is that mm. right? So, I mean, that's quite, you know, you, that's quite a statement to make. So just tell me when Hatshepsut was and what you think for her that meant for her to have the confidence to have that inscribed on the place that she was going to be travelling to the afterlife life from? Well, it would be no different from what a king would have, lord of the, of the two lands, right? So yeah. for her to call herself mistress of the two lands, all she's doing is feminizing the title that the king himself is using. So in, in a way, it speaks to how the Egyptian culture allowed a female to about six instances through history, maybe more, um, to take on those masculine titles and then to 
to claim them as their own and to feminize them, even grammatically, and to add a T. She's, she's Nebetawi, mistress of the two lands, not Nebetawi, so it, it, it completely works. I wouldn't particularly see the king of Egypt as being gender-linked. It's not necessarily male. There's the king, and usually that holder of that office is a male, and that will be the first choice. But if there is no male available, then it's quite possible for a woman to be that king the same way. It's, it's not a problem. And as Kara says, once you've become the king, you are the king. Yeah. Um, you don't on, abdicate from No, there's, yeah. there's no ending. Unless someone actually bumps you off, which we probably wouldn't find out about, you will stay that king until you die. And we're talking, so, so she lived um, just, sort of just after 1500 BC, so we're talking three and a Thank half. Thank you for the date. Yeah. Joyce and I discussed how we don't like dates, and yeah. we, we avoid them as much as possible. Yeah, well, she's, so, so she's almost three and a half uh, thousand years yeah. ago. And um, for people who don't know uh, kind of the intimate details of her life, it, it, she, her, her transition is interesting because she starts off being quite feminine in the way that she's represented but as time goes on as her reign goes on she acquires the aspects of kingship so so just just tell us about that it's it's an interesting thing people look at Hatshepsut and they say oh she became a cross-dresser oh she wanted to be a man oh she she was uh, she had a sexual choice that drew her into a particular um, masculine way of dressing and I think that that's a facile way of looking at it essentially what I would do with Hatshepsut is ask where is her power coming from at a given time when she is a young priestess, perhaps working for her father, Tutmos I, as the god's wife of Amun, she must show herself in a sexual way as a nubile young female. When she becomes the queen to her half-brother, Tutmos II, her sexuality is the, the means of her getting more power. When she becomes the mistress of the two lands before her time as king, as a regent for a baby ruler, possibly infant ruler. Um, now it's getting tricky. She, she wants to be a female still, but she has to have the authority that is more associated with masculinity. And then when she finally claims the, king in year, the kingship in year seven, she starts out showing herself as a female king, wearing a dress, and then layering elements of that kingship onto her person. Anemi's headdress, the way Tutankhamun has in his mask. Um, maybe she layered other elements like a, a kilt around her dress. But it's not until 10 or more years into this rule of hers that she decides to masculinize. And I would suggest that she probably didn't want to do it at all. No, I can't see into her mind. But her first statues of herself as a female king or as a female king. And then you see a statue, it's a well-known piece in the Met of white limestone that shows her as an androgynous male-female in-between figure, very beautiful feminine face, gracile body, but she's topless and she kind of has breasts but no nipples but not. And you look at it and you go, what's going on there? <laughs> and then the next series of statues you see, she is buff with, with all the... I don't pecs and biceps and things you can imagine, and a square jaw. And you wonder if she went there against her will. But the end result for me is knowing that Hatshepsut knew that she couldn't make this kingship fit her. She had to fit to that patriarchal model. In the end, she had no choice. And do you see in the way that she operated, do you see any difference between what we think of as male and female power? She has power, she's ruling. Is she ruling? do you think, in any different way to a male king? She has the same power, and she's ruling in the same way, but she's maybe emphasising different things. So a king traditionally in, in the New Kingdom, which is when she is, would emphasise military exploits. She does mention military exploits, and we can't say that she didn't appear on the battlefield, but she also emphasises other aspects, so things such as trade. The important thing for a king of Egypt is to be king of the entire world around you, because Egypt is the centre of the world, and you see everybody else as being, should really belong to Egypt. They're foreigners, they need to be subdued, they may to be, need to be brought under Egyptian control and to worship Egyptian gods and to be, to be made better in Egyptian. She does this by trade, so she doesn't go out and, and try and coerce people into becoming more Egyptian. She trades with them, and it's, an, it's another way of doing the same thing. She also emphasizes building. She does a lot of building works um, around Thebes. She raises obelisks, something that's very important to her because they link her to the gods and to her father. So she's doing the same thing, but she's doing it in a slightly different way than has been done before. But we ha I think we have to be quite careful 
because all reigns aren't the same. So even all male reigns aren't the same. There are changing um, traditions that, that are developing. So it might well be that she's doing this because at the time that she's on the throne, Egypt is stable and wealthy. And actually she can't go out and fight people because nobody will fight her. So it might be that she actually emphasizes this because her reign is successful, but a male king might have chosen to do the same thing. I, I think her gender is in many ways is irrelevant to, to the role that she, um, she performs and it's relevant to her. But of course, as Cara says, she knows that she's a woman and everyone would have known that she was a woman as well. She's been a queen of Egypt before she's a king of Egypt. But in the way she rules, she doesn't want it to show and maybe that's why she's, she's using this traditional image of a king, not even seeing it so much as a male image, just as a traditional king image. And do you, it's so interesting what you said um, uh, before, that in, in some ways it's a sort of ungendered society. You can have female kings as well as male kings. Do, do you see... You have to gender your you, you position. Gender, you know, gender your but, position once yeah, you're there. Yeah, yeah. And this, this is a genuine open question. Do you see that filtering down in, into the lower ranks of society? Or do we think that women had a pretty rubbish time as a poor ancient Egyptian? I, th I think if you're a woman in the ancient world, Egypt is definitely the place to be at. There's a tradition that a woman can deputise for a man. She deputises for her husband. They're, they're very much a partnership. They fit together. Everyone is expected to get married. Everyone would, wife and husband together. If the husband is away or even dead, the wife can deputise, which is something you don't often find. That's really what Hatshepsut's doing to a sort of greater extent. But I think we also have to remember that she was born into the royal family. She didn't come from nowhere and do this. She's inherited this position. So in the same way that she could inherit a position, somebody else lower down the social scale could inherit a position. I think it would be very difficult for a woman to assume power if she wasn't born to power. So this is one of the chief, um, the chief theses in my forthcoming book, which is the the dark side of this um, extraordinary ability of women in Egypt to take power so regularly and systematically, it only happens in places where there is such a deep authoritarianism that, it, 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 let me put it this way, if you're in Greece or Rome, one man falls, another man will take his place. But if you're dealing with an authoritarian ruling family that is keeping the power inside their orbit and controlling it very tightly, then if you have a king who is too young, too weak, too whatever, to rule, you will allow the child's mother or a woman to come in and, and step in as, as king on her own. But it's only the unequal and tight control on society that allows a woman to do that, which makes me then wonder, and this is a provocative thing and we can discuss, <laughs> is if we are conditioned because of these circumstances to think of female rule as associated with such dynasties. And I'll, I'll throw it out there because you said elephant. Um, but do we look at Hillary Clinton and associate her with that dynasty and say, wait a minute, she's not in it for all of us. She's in it for Bill and Chelsea and that family. Are we, without even critically thinking it through, associating a female's power with that unequal distribution thereof? So, there's, uh, but. <laughs> Discuss. Uh, do, do you, I mean, we will absolutely discuss this because I think it would be very interesting to look at once, we, once we've kind of looked at Nefertiti and Cleopatra, actually to ask ourselves whether there's anything that our current rulers could take from those mm. as, as role models to um, uh, aid their path to power or to nuance it in some way. Do, do, just tell me uh, one thing. Do, do you think with um, a, a woman like Hatshepsut, I thought it was so interesting what Joyce was saying about kind of economics and strategy, that, that you know, it could just be coincidental, but there does seem to be a slightly different approach. Do you see with these women who've inherited power because they're part of a dynasty, do they think of themselves as military leaders? There are images of them smiting, there are images of them holding weapons. Do you think that they think that they are creatures who also rule because they are macho in the true sense of the, the word? I, I think there are two, two types of women here. I think there are a lot of these almost ruling women that we don't see. Yeah. Because of this tradition that you would deputise for a missing husband. Teddy Sherry, Ahmed's Nefertari. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And going right the way back yeah. to the First Dynasty of Merit Neith. Yeah, we, yeah. we have queens who have a missing husband because he's in battle or he, he's died. It's usually because he's died. 
they will traditionally step forward and they will rule Egypt on the behalf of their infant son until he gets old enough to rule Egypt himself and then she will step back. And we don't see those reigns because it's entirely within the reign of the son. But, but for that period, the women, I'm sure, are ruling Egypt yeah. in the same way that the king does. It's obvious that there's rituals that have to be performed and a baby can't do them. So someone is doing that. The ones that we can actually see are those women who, for some reason, managed to come out of that anonymity. And it's how Hatshepsut started, I think. She started ruling in a very conventional way on behalf of her stepson and then managed to somehow overcome that. And I think, yes, absolutely, once they got to that position that they were being crowned as king of Egypt, they saw themselves absolutely fully as a king, able to function like any other king. It's interesting because Egyptian art isn't in any way a portrait. It's depicting the essence of what you want to be. And so it it seems appropriate that they try and use the traditional king depiction. We have the same problem with Sobek Nofru, who comes earlier. She also tries to combine male and female clothing to to be a a king of Egypt because she's a female king. It's showing that these these women are kings. They have the same sort of ethos behind them as, as the male kings and I don't think they would see the difference, they would just be the king. Mm-hmm. I mean it's the $64 million question, how much money is it? I don't know how much it is, is it $64 million? It doesn't matter. Um, but, but the question that you asked a few minutes ago, which is do women rule differently from men, is something that haunts me always because I do not know the answer to it and it's a nature versus nurture question and some days I'm like, well yes, totally they rule differently from men and other times I go all first wave feminist on it and say, no, of course, I'm just the same as anybody else. I'm not any different just because I have a womb and what does it mean? But I'm more persuaded, uh, the older I get, the more I read, the more I think, the more I look at this world, the more I live in Trump's America, that women do rule differently. And it's not necessarily something that we can easily understand. There's more nuance involved. There might be more deal-making. There's less decisiveness, perhaps. There's more connection to emotionality, which we find threatening. But I think I would rather work with a woman who tries out emotions rather than suppresses, and I'm being very, um, I'm not being very nuanced in what I'm saying, and I understand there are men who have more feminine traits and women who have more masculine traits. Um, But to try something out rather than a decisive decision that's just going to press the red button. But then you come back to Hatshepsut and Cleopatra, or Nefer Sobek, or all of these other women, and you, you ask in the ancient record, can I see this woman ruling differently from an Amenhotep III or a Ramses II. And then it becomes very, very fraught and very, very difficult because these women are put into a position where they must fit the position. And if she's got to invade someplace, she's got to invade someplace because the circumstances are demanding it or her position demands it. And then she's got something to prove. And then that's, it gets very, very complicated. Oh. We, have, yeah, yeah. we also have the problem because not only is the art sort of stereotypical, this is what a king looks like, so this is what you must look like if you're a king, but also the writings. These people aren't leaving us diaries and personal letters and so on. We're getting monumental inscriptions and inscriptions in in tombs and so on, which are all very formulaic, and they're telling the same story. And they want to tell the same story because it's reinforcing the fact that they're a king. So even ignoring what might or might not have happened in their reign, they will still promote themselves as doing exactly the same things. And it's very difficult for us to look back and see what actually happened in that reign as opposed to what they want us to think happened in that reign. Egyptian history is is very much like that. We're being presented with the words of the person who wants us to believe that they've behaved a certain way. It's an idealized, perfected reality. There's no messiness here. And can can religion help us at all? Because I think if you look at other societies at this time, so again, we're talking about 4,000, 3,500 years ago elsewhere. So in modern-day Turkey, modern-day Iraq, um, Greece. If you look at some of those uh, goddesses, for instance, who are worshipped there, my goodness, they are feisty creatures. So if we look at the ancestor of Aphrodite, Venus, 
And I think if you say the name Venus, everybody imagines this sort of wafty creature with lovely blonde hair kind of drifting around on a shell, you know, with, uh, with Cupid and his poisoned arrows being as malign as she gets. But actually, if you look at those earlier goddesses, Inanna and Ishtar and Astarte, they are goddesses of war and sex. They are fighters as well as lovers and everything that's, that's <coughs> talked about those women who were incredible, those female creatures who were incredibly influential in society makes it very clear that they are bespoke and effective fighters um, as well as givers of life. They are bringers of death as well as bringers of life. There is no one-to-one -one correlation for this. So if you're talking about Greece where you have Athena, goddess of war, this virgin who can take matters in her own hands, and then you look at Greek cultural life in the ancient world for women who can't leave the home unless they're veiled and accompanied by a male, there is a great disconnect there. Or if you look at the modern world and you go to India and you look at Kali and Durga and you go to their temples and you see them eating the, the kings who have done something wrong and there's images with blood and entrails and it's crazy and you see this ferocious woman and then you look at Indian society as it functions, just religious society, there are no priestesses that have any power in Indian society. I don't wanna say as a whole, but I will almost say as a whole. And so there is, there is that disconnect again. Egypt has these strong, ferocious goddesses like Sakmet, Tefnut, Mut, who on behalf of their father, the sun god, can go out and destroy the rebels. But in Egypt's case, the difference is that emotionality, that fierceness, that PMSing bitch, <laughs> is something that in Egypt is used to protect the king at the center of the wheel. Mm. And in other places like Greece or Rome or India or here, we look at that and we think, oh my God, I don't want that, that crazy up and down hormonal thing ruling my country. She'll make a decision that we just can't deal with. And, and no, no, no. And so there is this hostility towards that. that there's an, a kind of argument uh, that there's actually exactly said that, that it's not respect that's engendering those creatures. It's, it's fear. And there's, there's a very um, <laughs> lovely little figure. If you go and have a look at it from this place, we were talking about Chattelhoyuk, which is, uh, you know, uh, claims to be one of the oldest cities in the world. So again, stretches back about 9,000 years, so looking at uh, artifacts from around 7,000 BCE. And there's a really fascinating one, a beautiful, fat, fecund woman with great bosoms mm. and uh, a wonderful She's pregnant scary. tummy. She's very scary yeah, and, and these yeah. huge, uh, huge <laughs> lovely thighs. But if you turn her around at the back, her flesh starts to melt away from her bones and from behind she's a skeleton. And it seems to be saying that figurine, as I said, that these are creatures that can bring both life and death. And there might be something very practical going on there that actually in childbirth, women would have given birth to stillborn children as much as they did to living children. In so probably, world, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one, in, one in two children will be stillborn. So anyway, so it's a kind of very, as you say, it's kind of irrelevant. It's kind of totally irrelevant and absolutely relevant yeah. as well, what they're doing with their gods. So let's just have a look at Nefertiti. And I should just warn you, ladies and gentlemen, that these two disagree a little on Nefertiti, Queen Nefertiti, and just how much power that she had. And when I say a little, they are opponents of the, of the scale. But if we... Um, uh, Perhaps, Joyce, just, just tell us who Nefertiti is. You will probably immediately imagine the beautiful bust that's currently in Berlin, but just give us a thumbnail portrait of Nefertiti. Okay, Nefertiti is known to be the wife of the heretic king, Akhenaten. I don't like the term heretic king because you can't really be a heretic in ancient Egypt because there is no set code of religious behavior. But he's certainly a very different king. He has an mo almost monotheistic belief. He's not a monotheist, although he's often said that he is. Um, he worships primarily the sun in various forms, but he allows other gods as well. We don't know much else more about Nefertiti, apart from the fact that she has six daughters. She might have had sons as well. She might be Tutankhamun's mother. She might be other people's mothers, um, primarily a king of Egypt known as Smenkare. But we can't prove that because in illustrations of the royal family at the time, you don't see sons. So you will see a king and queen and their daughters. Because as you've said, the daughters have a protective role yeah. in the art and they're protecting the king. So they're there for that purpose. But the sons aren't there because they're potential future kings. We don't know where she came from, but we strongly suspect that she is Egyptian born. There's no evidence to suggest that she isn't Egyptian born. We agree so far. Yes. <laughs> Akhenaten and Nefertiti move to a new city where they can worship their sun god, the Aten, and they build the city from scratch quite quickly. Um, because it was never occupied after it had been abandoned after about 25 years, we have a lot of art from, from this city, and we can see 
that Nefertiti is prominent. She's prominent, she does political things, um, she stands alongside her husband, she rewards people, and she even appears in smiting scenes, as we've discussed. Mm. Um, she's also very religiously prominent. Um, Akhenaten's new religion removes the traditional gods, and the people are urged to worship the sun god, the Aten, but they can't just, it's not very dem democratic. Often he's described as a democrat, but he's not at all, in that you can't access the sun, as you would think you could just by standing in a field. You have to access the sun god via the royal family. So Nefertiti is almost in the position of someone you have to worship through, so she's almost a living goddess. All that I agree with, but I don't think in that respect she's any different to her mother-in-law, Queen T, who was also a very powerful woman. I think this is just how these queens were. We used to think that after year 12 of Akhenaten's reign, that Nefertiti disappeared. And we found that very strange, because how could someone who'd been so prominent disappear? So we thought of various ideas on what might have happened to her. She might have been banished. She might have gone somewhere else and started a new religion. And one very popular idea was that she had, in fact, not vanished, but changed her name. So we couldn't see her because she has a different name. But more recently, we have a piece of graffiti dated to year 16 of Akhenaten, and he dies in year 17, which confirms that she is still a queen consort. So my feeling is that at this point, soon after, or round about the time that Akhenaten himself dies in year 17, Nefertiti herself dies. I do think there are prominent royal women around at this time, but I think it's Nefertiti's daughters, um, her firstborn and her third-born daughters, who are the prominent royal women. I don't think there's anything to suggest that Nefertiti herself would rule, because she's not born royal. She's, she's no entitlement to the throne. Her two daughters do, so I would see them as being the important figures from that point onwards. But not everyone would, yeah, would, yeah, 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 yeah. would agree with that. I mean... The fact that we disagree means nothing, in a sense, because this time period is more fought over than any time period in all of Egyptology or maybe ancient history, um, bar none. And it, there's just enough evidence to say, it's this way, and then just enough evidence to say, no, it's exactly the opposite. And so um, that's okay. The, the reason I think, that, I think Nefertiti actually had a very interesting um, journey from uh, queen to co-ruler to sole ruler. And the, I'm more firm on the co-ruler part, and I think there are many other Egyptologists who are firm on that as well. Firm, semi-firm, right? Like a tofu. And then we get into the, the sole ruler part, and it's very crumbly, and we're all in earthquake territory, and I'm not going to ever say, go all in and say she was definitely sole ruler on her own, though there is a Neferneferotan inscription from Thebes that's dated to year two. And what one does with that um, dis inscription, I, I don't know. Um, so the way I see it, and, um, and my thoughts have been influenced by, um, oh, I'm not going to name scholars. We don't need to do that, right? No, nobody cares. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's great. Um, I see her as ruling alongside Akhenaten. Yes, not as a royal daughter, but because I think he had no one else to really turn to and he, for some reason, needed her at this point. And this is an idealizing society. The circumstances are veiled. Um, if she became co-ruler and sole ruler, when she did so, she changed her names. And she went from Nefertiti the wife to, and help me if I get this wrong, this is not easy, um, Ankhepure Nefru Nefer Aten, as so-ruler, right, rolls off the tongue, to, as, as co-ruler, to as sole ruler, Ankhepure Smenkare. And, did I do it right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, and the only thing that follows who are from co-ruler to sole ruler would be the Ankhepure. And I know of no other king that shares a throne name with another king um, like this. And the, the thing that's the most interesting to me is if she took this journey, she had to abandon her identity as queen, as Nefertiti, as that iconic beauty along the way. And this is, so in my book I say, you know, whether she did this or not, we'll never know, it's not clear. But if she did, she was demanded by this patriarchal society to melt away what she was and become what she was expected to be. And um, that's the more interesting part to me. We can argue about the intricacies of the history forever. So. I mean, one way that she absolutely 
rules is she's ruled the world's imagination after her death. So she is, as I think you've both said in your books, probably arguably the most famous, if not one of the most famous figures from the ancient world. Uh, If you say the name Nefertiti, people probably that image of her bust springs to mind. Is that cogent? Does the beauty of a woman well, no, we, see, we don't even know if she's beautiful. This is another thing. We've already said that Egyptian art is not portraiture. We have one beautiful bust, and we have quite a few other images which don't look particularly like that. Oh, quite she looks often. horrible in some. Yeah. Oh, my God. Quite often, <laughs> quite often it's the crown that's identifying Nefertiti, and in fact, even the bust isn't named, but we take it on trust that it's Nefertiti. Because of, because of her crown. Yeah, so we assume. Crown. If we ever found out that these are Mana Royal Ladies shared crowns, then we'd be in real trouble, because we wouldn't know who was who. But we have this one bust, and from that, this whole... Nefertiti mythology has developed that she was this really, really beautiful woman. She doesn't have to have been. That was presumably the image of Nefertiti that was selected to be used by that workshop and to be put around Amarna. So it was an image that was spread, but it might not have looked like her. She might have looked something completely different. But we like the idea of, of, of our queens being beautiful. We place an awful lot of emphasis in our society on beauty. So it, it pleases us that she's beautiful and she's remained this influential character, I think, more for her, for her beauty than her deeds. I mean, she's a really fascinating person and we should really try and look beneath the beauty. Or just, just two really quick observations on that that you'll both know, and I, I, you, you'll probably realise in the room as well, what's really interesting, we're talking about her beauty. What is fascinating is that there, there have been these terrible newspaper articles saying that she was kind of airbrushed and that the gypsum that was put on her face was used to give her this kind of instant facelift. But actually, what's fantastic is the lighting has now changed in the museum and people mm. realise that's mm. not true, that if you look both at the gypsum surface... The lines on her face. She's got lines on her face, she's a tiny bit jowly, you know, even the limestone court underneath. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so her age is actually being honoured and cherished actually, in and that And she looks, portrait. I think, a lot more attractive now. Before, she was, she was perfect, but too perfect, I think, mm. and, and very asexual. But now she looks, to my mind anyway, much more alluring and more like a real person. It is interesting. And, and although I, this is just, again, slightly controversial. Although you say beauty doesn't matter, and that we're judging that from a 21st or 20th or 19th century point of view, I'd contest that slightly because if you look at a lot of writing, it talks about charisma and beauty being God-given. It's something which is given to mortals by the divine, and therefore it's a gift of the gods, and therefore is something which has absolute value. So that's, this is in comparative societies as well. So do you think that there is a notion, although we'd like to think appearances don't matter and that we're just kind of foisting our, our opinion on them, do you think there, there could have been something that you can make yourself look beautiful if you are a queen as well? You can cover yourself with oil, with gold, with perfume, kind of with spices. That that was the, the, the impression that you gave, even if it wasn't your physical genetic beauty, was used to enhance your power to those around well, you. Well, you brought us to Cleopatra. Yes. Because <laughs> Cleopatra, according to Arabic sources and others, is known for having written books on beauty and what to do for skin care and is revered as a kind of beauty doctor um, in, in the medieval world mm-hmm. amongst some people. And Cleopatra, opposite of Hatshepsut, and if Nefertiti became co-king and soul king and masculinized herself, is the only one in our, in our list who uses, if she wasn't beautiful, at least uses her and many say she wasn't beautiful, but whatever, um, uses her allure, her femininity, her, um, her attractiveness to attract the most powerful Roman warlords um, imaginable. And if she didn't have that um, pleasantness to look upon, I don't think that she could have done that. But she worked it, and she knew to work it. Mm. That was her methodology. And also, it might not have been, as you said, it might not have been a kind of conventional beauty, because as we all know, there's, there's something else about charisma and sex appeal, which has nothing to do well, with something how you're facing. And, yeah, and I, well, uh, yes, being in charge of uh, Egypt, which might have been uh, quite no. attractive. But actually, again, I think, Joyce, I think you take a slightly different view, because she's definitely been sexualized, Cleopatra, 
downtime, all the asses milk and, and all of that. And you think that's a bit she of nonsense. Has. I mean, we assumed, because she was able to attract these two eminent Romans, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, that she must have been beautiful. But we're assuming this based on the writings of the, the Roman authors, which have fed to us through Shakespeare um, and beyond that, and particularly from film these days. And we assume that only a beautiful woman could have done this. Um, and it's a good excuse in a way. Why did these two great Romans get seduced by this foreigner? It should never have happened. She was tempting them away from the traditional good Roman wives who would sit at home and possibly still be weaving and, and so on. Wouldn't behave like Cleopatra did anyway. There had to be a reason for it. It couldn't be the men's fault. So it had to be Cleopatra's <laughs> fault. And she was very, very beautiful. She was a temptress. She was a sorceress mm. and so on. But as Cara said, you know, she was also a queen of a wealthy country. But the beauty is the double-edged sword, right? Because the beauty is something that is generally in society, the, it is possessed by somebody young, which means that in any sort of asymmetrical relationship is owned by a man who is connected to her who is older. And so Nefertiti as a beautiful queen is possessed by her husband, the king, and any beautiful wife is in a patriarchal society possessed by that woman. So in many ways, Nefertiti's beauty or Cleopatra's beauty is what in our perception of them disallows their power. It makes them something that is less than. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, the, again, the descriptions of Boudicca, the great um, British queen, the fact that Cassius Dio describes her as having tawny hair down to her hips and flashing eyes, that's not actually a compliment. It's mm -hmm. creating her as this kind of anti-superhero, saying mm -hmm. she has to be somehow demonically beautiful, again, that she mm -hmm. must be possessed in order to, to have given the Romans such a run for their money. Beauty that can make a man lose his mind. Yeah. That like, is the danger that we, that we ward off. It is. Yeah. Sorry, we're actually riffing here, but it, <laughs> Helen of Troy is the same. So Homer, when he talks about Helen, the old men of Troy, they sit around and he says they chat like cicadas. You can hear their voices rise and fall. And they're saying, oh, look at that beauty. What terrible beauty. Beauty like that of a goddess. Mm. And what they mean is beauty that make men do things that they shouldn't do. And thus you get veiling, you get women who can't leave the home, you get female circumcision, you get marriage tests and virginity tests. If you look at Cleopatra's coins, <laughs> which we might assume are the image that Cleopatra herself wants to put across. She's got a very austere, sort of masculine look to her. Mm. She's not a conventional beauty at all. And I think we have to assume that's deliberate, that she doesn't want to be seen mm. as beautiful mm. or pretty. She wants to be seen as effective. Mm. And we see exactly the same look on Cleopatra III, who is, is in many ways a kind of role model for Cleopatra VII, that again, she looks almost masculine because she doesn't want to be seen as weak and feminine. She wants to be seen as strong and powerful, and that's the image she's, she puts out. And as you're both saying, there is just a chance, an outside chance, that it's not just her sexual power that um, allows her to control the men around her, but because she was unbelievably smart. So, I mean, this is a woman, is it nine languages that she can speak, Cleopatra, and a kind of troglodyte language as yeah, well? Yeah, and apparently she was the only Ptolemy who could speak Egyptian, so the only one, <laughs> the only one of the ruling family. Good, which is a very good start. And a mathematician and a, and a philosopher and a strategist. You know, she inherits uh, an Egypt that is debt-ridden, Rome is, as the contemporary source is describing it, hunting it down like a lion, you know. So she's got an extraordinary geopolitical problem on her plate. To survive, she had to be as clever a strategist as she possibly could have been because she's born into a snake pit. And the Ptolemies, I mean, they're, they're killing each other off more than any dynasty that I've ever, <laughs> certainly in Egypt, but it's like Game of Thrones over there. And the <laughs> fact that, that she made it to adulthood, I mean, growing up and avoiding the assassination attempts that I can imagine from the history we know of this Ptolemaic family, it must have been a PTSD giving existence to make it that far. So her ability to speak all of these languages, maybe Egyptian as well, to understand mathematics in a certain way, very much was survival for her um, to make it in this um, cutthroat world. And we've just talked a little bit about how historical sources deal with women and deal with powerful women in particular. Do, do you think that there's a chance that actually um, history itself has served us a big, hot serving of fake news when it comes to um, powerful women, that actually there are potentially more powerful women who've been written out of history simply because mm -hmm. they had control? 
Yes, absolutely. I think we're missing a whole host of, of powerful women who just haven't had someone there to write down what they're doing at the, at the time that it happened. And the ones that we have got, like Cleopatra, being distorted, we're forgetting that she's clever and she's astute, and we think, oh, well, she was beautiful. And you know, that's sort of an excuse for everything that happened to her. So the way I see it is that the women who are successful have their successes taken from them by the men who come after. Hatshepsut did everything right. She left Egypt better than she found it. And what e better thing for the kings who came after her than to take what she had done and reassign it to others. Success is very fungible. It's very abstract. But failure, failure is getting bitten by an asp to commit suicide. Failure is having your daughters raped in front of your eyes like Boudicca and then trying to fight against the Romans and failing. Failure is very idiosyncratic. It makes a good Shakespeare play. And it's something that we can aggrandize and make more of and then remember as a, a, a way of, of warding off those, those women in power again because look at what they'll do if they get it. There's a terrible, terrible parlor game. You can all go home and play, ladies and gents, tonight. That um, If you say, name me the 10 most powerful men in the world, you'll find there's quite a lot of debate and probably uh, that game could carry on for two or three weeks. If you say, name me the 10 most powerful women in the world, at about six, seven or eight, people start to run out of names. Mm. And like it or not, women have always been 50% of the population. Mm. And all societies have debated whether they should have more power. So exactly as you're saying, there's a, a pure maths in play here that it is very unlikely that actually there have only been about eight powerful women in the story of, of human civilization. There are a few that we should definitely rehabilitate. I don't know, have any of you have heard of Theodora, the Byzantine Empress? Mm. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> well, what a brilliantly educated audience. I asked that question back in the UK and one person put up their hand. So you're already winning on all counts. If you don't know of her, she's just, just one example. We're, we're sort of leaping forward a bit in time, but uh, she's in late antiquity, uh, 6th century AD. She's the empress of Byzantium. She runs a, a million square miles of land. She starts out life as a prostitute, erotic dancer, uh, and is super bright makes her way to marry Justinian. And as soon as she has power, she does extraordinary things. Mm. She reforms society, she sets up safe houses for prostitutes, for fallen women, for single mothers. She uh, outlaws infanticide and pimping and increases the penalties for rape. She's an, a remarkable creature. But she should be, everybody should be talking about Theodora. Everybody's talking about exactly as you're saying, whether her female power was different and whether actually, we, you know, I've, I've not seen any other uh, medieval or ancient monarchs who used their moment in power to reform society in the way that she did. So she's just, she's just one example. And how brilliant to think that there, there are others. We're, we're going to wrap up our conversation soon and it's going to be time for you. I've just got to ask you three more questions uh, about the, the, the relationship <laughs> between history, history and women and power. So uh, you mentioned um, contemporary politicians, Hillary Clinton. Do you think that there are any women currently in power or striving to achieve power who should look back to the role models that you've been describing and either avoid what they've done or emulate them? Are there any practical lessons to be learnt from those women in history? I, I think it's always good to look back on history and see what's happened and learn from it. I'm not sure I could put a, a practical... I suppose the thing is to surround yourself with, with the men who support you. I think that seems to be the, the thing. But unfortunately, certainly from the point of view of Egypt, the real lesson seems to be to be born into a monarchy, and then you can get... <laughs> <laughs> which, because we seem to have... It seems to be easier for a female to take power in a monarchy than it does seem to be in a democracy, I'm afraid. Gosh. So, so we need a few more Meghan Markles coming over to the UK to <laughs> find more princes. Then. Well, where there's more ability to, to choose in a free market, I would say, is our economic sector. And how many female CEOs are there? And I just looked at the figures. We're at 6% in the United States. Um, I think it's like 8% in Canada, yay Canada. But that's when people have the ability as shareholders and there is an organic movement. Do we give our money to the woman to control or to the man? And they run screaming in the other direction. So, but then there, there's um, the elections coming up and I think there are record numbers of women who are running and I think many of them could win. And I am of two minds about telling them to act more like men. Um, 
Well, I mean, look at Hillary the first time she ran, Clinton, and then the second time she ran, you'll notice that she did masculinize herself. She lowered her voice. She was less shrill. Um, she, she took voice coach lessons, I'm sure, and, and depict, presented herself in a, in a certain kind of way. I don't know if that necessarily helps to deny our femininity. What I'm saying we need to do is something I don't know if humanity can do. Um, this country elected a black president and we then had to discuss our racism in connection to politics in a more open way with each other. And I think if we then end up someday electing a female president, I think we will have to discuss our sexism in an open way and verbalize it in ways that we have not before. And um, verbalize our innate, maybe even, I dare say, biologically driven hostility towards this female power. And the only way that we can overcome our innate biologically driven racism is by talking about it and through education. And I think that it would be the same with our misogyny. And um, that's not something that <laughs> humans organically and naturally do. No. So um, <laughs> it, sometimes I think, well, look at history, we'll, we'll gain lessons and we'll be able to move forward in a better uh, way and better light. And other times I think that we simply repeat the same mistakes over and over again. So I don't know the answer to your question. It does, it, it has to help though, doesn't it, to understand the depths of the roots of a, of a problem. You yeah. have to understand the, the, the shape and the nature of a problem in order to solve it. And I think as you're saying, if you just look at that sexism, again, you'll probably know this, the, the first created woman in Greek culture was simply given the name Kalon Kakon, the beautiful evil thing. She was evil because she was beautiful, beautiful because she was evil. And actually the Greeks had an incredibly um, acute medical reason for that high voice that you were describing. Mm that Hillary Clinton had to train, that they said that um, uh, a woman had a high squeaky voice because her womb wandered hysterically around her body, which uh, gave her this kind of terrible pitch. Whereas, thank goodness, men, you'll be pleased to hear this, a men's vocal cords were lassoed to their testicles, uh, which is what gave them such a, love, a lovely timbre. And then I was telling this story the other day and somebody said, well, it's still true, men do still time, sometimes talk with their balls. But I, I don't want to... I, I love men. I don't, I don't want to... To uh, <laughs> be sexist myself, but so, but so, yeah. So, so look back at. We need to look back at history, but not to presume that it's going to give us easy answers to the problems of today. Yes. Yeah. And do you think? Just, <laughs> <laughs> to be, hate to be the one to cut this oh. off, but we do have to get to questions from everyone. Yes. Else. Yes. So I'm uh. so sorry. I thought you were saying ten minutes. I couldn't see your hands. In no, the he dark. was going to stop. I, I was. Stop. I know. <laughs> Hold on. Well, before we do get to questions, a big round of applause for this fantastic panel. <laughs> so this is the part of the evening where we get to take questions from all of you. There are two of us going around with microphones. If you please raise your hand high, then we will come to you. Uh, we'd also greatly appreciate if you would say your first and last name before your question. And also, this part of the program will be recorded and published uh, online at SoCloPublicSquare.org. Bianca here has the first question on the right. Hi, I'm Joy Selby. Um, my question is, uh, why did you not uh, consider Elizabeth I as a woman that ruled the world? She came into power uh, with basically nothing, a debt-ridden country. And by the time she died, the famous English saying, the sun never sets on English soil. I just, I think that is worth considering. Yeah, she's definitely, she, Elizabeth I is definitely one who turns up in that list. She's usually about number five. So I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. The truth is, we're going to have to do a whole other session on oh, the yeah. uh, late antique world, the early modern world, the medieval world, to talk about those wonderful, powerful women. But we were focusing on, on the women of Egypt today. N another question would be fantastic. Next question is on your left. Hi, my name is Joe Maldonado, and um, thank you for being here. This is really fascinating. Um, my question is, um, you know, in, in Hollywood, in films, <laughs> you see um, uh, a king or a queen uh, come out and there's multitudes of, you know, Egyptian uh, citizens, you know, um, 
looking at, the, at these kings and queens. Uh, but I get the impression from what you were saying is that uh, the, the queen uh, kind of ruled uh, without people really seeing her. Is that, is that really, is that what the case was? Or did, or did the multitudes did see, uh, you know, would, would the king or queen come out and greet or uh, talk to the, the citizens? Um, it, it was a slightly strange situation in ancient Egypt because the kings didn't have one palace as such, but they would actually spend a lot of their reign moving along the Nile, going from, from place to place to make themselves quite visible, and then traveling back again. Also, I think it's probably a measure to make sure that people who are far away um, still remember that you are the king. And they would travel with a small entourage, including the queen, I think. But the, the extent to which they're seen by the people is... is quite debatable. We have images of them with the elite who surround them, but for actual people, ordinary people as such, I'm not sure that they would see them that often. We know that at the site of Amarna, where there weren't royal processions, the royal family would, instead of the gods, would actually process down the middle of the city. So they certainly saw them at Amarna, but the extent to which an ordinary Egyptian person would expect to see the royal family, I'm not at all sure. I think it's probably less often than we'd think. I, I, I'm not sure even to the extent to which ordinary Egyptian people would know who was on the throne and really what was going on because they would be so centered on their own village life. Which um, brings up the question of this perfected authoritarianism. Yeah. You only need 5% of the population to see you and, and uh, have that pageantry displayed to them. That's who it's for. Um, the, the common peasant man or woman is immaterial. Next There's question. no revolution in ancient Egypt. <laughs> Next question. Yes. <clears throat> My name is Ellis Seligman, and I have want to bring you up to more modern times. They, in the blurb that you put out for this particular uh, program, you mentioned Angela Merkel as leading a very weak coalition in Germany, which is only 1% of the population, so therefore it's not uh, worldwide. I'd like to go back 20, 25 years to go west to England, and another much stronger, I think, uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who also started a war, whether you agreed with her or agreed with her policy, how do you fit her into this uh, uh, milieu? Mm. Shall I take that? Um, uh, just, just. I mean, Joyce, I'm sure we'll have her own opinion. Uh, and I'm American. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher divides um, the British. She is the ultimate Marmite ruler. Some people think she was the very best thing for the country. Some people think that she destroyed it. I tell you one thing about her, though. As a young girl growing up, I, I was a child of Margaret Thatcher. She definitely told me that women could be in power. And that wasn't something that I felt before she took that position. So that this kind of plays into our conversation about role models and for good and for bad, what they're worth. Joyce, I don't know if you want to... Yes, I mean, she was, she was the first to do what she was doing, and whether you like her policies or not, she showed that it was possible to do it. And I think that maybe not immediately after she, she'd fallen from power, but now looking backwards, no longer, girls don't grow up in England thinking that I can't be the prime minister. They now know it is entirely possible for them to be a prime minister. And at the moment, we have a female prime minister and we have a female queen on the throne. So our girls know that all these things are possible for them. And that alone, I think, is a really, really good thing. Even if they do say slightly daft things. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society. Who told her to say that? And uh, Theresa May saying that the, uh, uh, a citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. Um, it was possibly not her finest hour. Um, can, can I step in really fast? You may. And just say, as an American, that in a parliamentary system where you don't have the direct selection of this woman, I think it is easier then to put this woman in as the... Um, voice of, of her party, and I see Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher acting as the voice of the party rather than a woman elected, and I'm not saying our system is better, this is not what I'm saying, um, as a woman um, speaking maybe more for herself rather than a party, and this is something I constantly struggle with as I, as I think about your question, do women rule differently, and then I watch Sarah Sanders on TV as the mouthpiece for Donald Trump and all of that misogyny and 
and, and other problems that I have personally, right? And where is her feminism? Where is, is she ruling differently? Is she even ruling? And then I, I have to readjust and say she's not ruling. She is there as a voice for a patriarchy. And this is going to be, I'm so sorry, but I'm saying that Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher, I think in many ways act more as a voice for that Tory party than they do for women or for progressive, or for, but what, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, I can't believe I just said that yeah. in this I, setting. Next question's on your life. Oh my, oh, another question. Okay, let's just go past Hi it. there, I'm Kelly Warren. It's great to see all of you tonight. Um, I'm a big fan of the Ptolemaic Age, and I was just wondering, are there any cultural factors that you feel um, let women rise to more prominence during that era? Because it seems like we do, have a lot more prominent women who pop up, or is it just um, a bias because of all of the statues and the writings that we have from that era? Oh my God, do you, you want it? <laughs> <laughs> so did um, you hear it? Okay. I mean, you're asking what, what women needed in Ptolemaic Egypt to, main, to, to create their power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, money exactly. And, uh, family, place, and money. And, yeah. and, and wombs were helpful. Cleopatra had a very successful womb. It was no bad thing that she had all those children to put them in as king or queen of Armenia or, or Cyprus or whatever. So. And I think you were also saying culturally, weren't you? Was there anything sort of, was there a kind of recipe that allowed women to come to power? Is that what you said? I, it's a bit strange because as the Ptolemies come in, they, they bring back some of the old traditions. So they bring back brother-sister marriage, which you haven't had for, for some time, which is quite scandalous in, in the, the world outside Egypt because you don't expect full brother-sister marriage. And again and again, generation after generation yeah. mm. in Ptolemaic Egypt. It can't have been pretty. Well, exactly. They, they, <laughs> they have to do it. it. It becomes compulsory now. So you almost have the two of them ruling together so that the queen has to produce not only an heir but also a female heir and the two of those will, will marry together. And that changing idea is, is what I think makes the, the women so powerful because they know, then know that they can rule by themselves or, or with the sun. People like Cleopatra, we always think of her ruling by herself, but actually she always rules with a male alongside her. It's, it's usually a son who you don't see, or a brother that you don't see much of, but she's not alone. The other reason the females in the Ptolemaic dynasty have so much power is, as you just said, I'll put a finer point on it, is they, they do something extraordinarily stupid. They get rid of the harem and they put all of the reproductive, the legal reproductive onus on this, this divine brother-sister marriage that's going to produce the next generation. And once you get rid of the harem, you get rid of the, you know, the possibility that you can have 365 children growing in a given year and that you'll, you'll have health and, and, but you're also giving that particular woman all of the, the power for the next generation down the line, and you can see women having control over certain sons or, or, or daughters as, as things go on. But Next question. Uh, hi, this one's for Joyce. Uh, my name's Diane. When Cleopatra died, she was in the custody of uh, the Romans, Octavian. Would it not be as logical that she was cremated rather than embalmed. I mean, the Romans burned people. Thank you, because that's exactly what I think happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's, at least if I was Octavian, that is what I would have done. She, she needed a funeral, and it's never good to just destroy the body of your, your defeated enemy. She needed a proper funeral. But at that time, it would have been perfectly respectful for a Roman to have had a cremation, and it gets rid of the body, which might turn itself into a sort of object of veneration, and, and so on. So I always think this when we're looking for the tomb of Cleopatra. Maybe there isn't one, or maybe it's much smaller than we think it's going to be. But yes, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> I even doubt the suicide. Yeah. But that's fine. What do, you, what, do you, what, what do you think happened? I mean, where do we get the information for the suicide from? It's all Roman sources. It, it's a brilliant thing to make her a self-involved, selfish, she's going to leave her children to the Romans sort of woman. It's a brilliant strategy, and we still buy into it. And then we, we have no idea what the method was. It wasn't really an ASP. Nobody really knows. Um, so he could have just killed her and then said, oh, look what she did, and who's to say any different? We're just about to get to our last question because we are <laughs> running out of time. Um, but if you weren't here down here in the room with us or if you didn't have a chance to ask your question, all of our panelists will be at the reception just right immediately afterwards out on the terrace. Our last question is right here on your left. 
So, hi, my name is Kate Pointer, and I was wondering, if women tried to get into power in ancient times, were they pushed down in drastic measures? Would they take drastic measures to get back up to power? That's it, I'll start. So every time a woman took power in ancient Egypt, there was a pushback. We'll start with Hatshepsut. She, she claims the kingship in year seven of her regency for her young nephew and leaves Egypt better than she found it is fully successful, but and her image is erased after her death, some time after her death, but names and images are erased, statues are smashed up into nothing. The statues you visit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York have all been carefully glued back together. And the position that she used to gain that power, the God's wife of Amun position, was effectively hamstrung by the kings who came after. And they named their mothers to the position. They named non-royal women to the position. No more king's daughters or sisters were put into that position. And so they took the power away from the, the daughter the royal daughters and sisters. And that's just one example. You see it in the Sixth Dynasty, you're gonna see it in, in later time periods as well. And um, that means that every time, I mean, I, I'll do it again. We thought we were in a post-racial society in Obama's presidency. And I think the pushback against um, that has been pretty clear. And every time we see a minority gaining power, it is a normal human reaction to push back and try to go to what the status quo was before. I'm so All right, sad. well, what a great question to end on. Before we close, <laughs> I'd like to say thank you to the Getty, our co-presenter tonight. Also, thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming. We're so glad to see you, and please stick around for the reception. Come grab drinks with us. And finally, a big round of applause for our fantastic panel tonight. Big oh, applause. Awesome. <laughs> oh.